Please take your Bibles and turn to Philemon. This is our fourth week in this letter to Philemon, and we're going to read verses 21 to 25. So when you find that, please stand with me, and we will read God's Word. Philemon, and verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Lord, we pray as we look at your word now that you would change us and that you would pour out your grace upon our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have been in Philemon for four weeks now, and forgiveness has been our focus. If there's one thing we know about forgiveness, it's that forgiveness has the power to, to change lives and to restore. That's the message of Paul's letter to Philemon, written on behalf of a runaway slave named Onesimus, who met Paul in Rome and was led to saving faith in Christ. Now he was forgiven by God, but God led him to go back And to own up to what he did. To basically turn himself in. And Paul helped him by writing to Philemon. Asking him to reconcile with his returning slave. Who was now a brother in Christ. A beloved brother. So far in Philemon we've seen the heart of forgiveness. The heart of one who forgives. We've seen the beauty that comes in repentance. We have seen that it always costs something to forgive. And today we see its power. And I want to look first at forgiveness in review and then forgiveness in action as seen in verses 21 through 25 here in Philemon. But first of all, forgiveness in review. What is it? It has both divine and human uh, dimensions. God's forgiveness, first of all, is the gracious act by which God puts believers into a right relationship with himself. He transferred them from spiritual death into life. And that's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Acts chapter 6 and verse 43 states, through his name, through the name of Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. But it's also that ongoing gift of God's grace uh, by which our lives would be out of joint if we didn't have it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. As if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous, and He's going to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is an initial transformation in Christ, but there's an ongoing restoration of the relationship on a daily basis. Now, in the human dimension, our forgiveness of others is the act and the attitude toward people who have wronged you that restores relationship and fellowship. Verse 17 in Philemon, it says, Welcome him as you would welcome me. Accept him. Restore him. It's the gracious act of not holding wrong acts against other people. Now in general, forgiveness is what you would call repairing uh, seriously wounded relationships. The means by which you move from hostility to harmony. 
Now, in forgiving, what you're doing is you're granting freedom from a debt. You're letting it go. You're releasing someone from the burden that sin has created. You assume responsibility for the debt, much like Paul did when he said in verse 18 to Philemon, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, put that on my account. And in that instance, he was substituting himself for Onesimus, much like Jesus substituted himself for us on the cross. But it is a process where you free the person from what you have against them. It's a process because you choose not to relate to them anymore on the basis of what they did to you. Every time you remember it. You practice Ephesians 4.32. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Freely, graciously. Now, it's helpful to know what forgiveness is. In order to do it, you kind of need to know that. But it's also helpful to know what forgiveness isn't. And first of all, forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. You're not expected to feel good about what was bad. Anger against sin and its horrible consequences is fitting to a point. But you're not to hold to that anger in a vindictive way of, that desires harm for the other person. What you need to do is you need to hand it over to him who judges righteously, to him who is a just judge. And you need to do that again and again. You pray for their transformation. You pray for the person that wounded you so deeply. You see, forgiveness is not feeling good about horrible things. The second thing that forgiveness is not is it is not the absence of serious consequences for sin. And sin has consequences. And allowing, allowing someone to go to jail for a crime doesn't mean that you're unforgiving. You can relationally no longer hold it against them, but it doesn't take away the need for consequences or restitution. Sin can be taken away and consequences remain. So, how do you know if you've truly forgiven someone? How do you know? What will, what will you feel like? Uh, what, will you, what will be evident in your life if you've truly forgiven someone? Well, I want to quote from Thomas Watson, who wrote over 300 years ago, commenting on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. He asked this question, When do we forgive others? And here's the answer that he gave. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, to help them. So you'll know if you've forgiven when you resist revenge. When Romans twelve nineteen says, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. And God says, Vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay. And because God is the one that repays, because God is the one who is the just judge, there is no room for our vengeance. There is no room for our revenge. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15 says, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to another. So the first thing is, you'll know if you're forgiving if you don't seek revenge. You resist it. The next thing is, 
You'll know if you're forgiving if you help them. If the very person that did you so much wrong, you go out of your way to help them. You, uh, you bless them. See, those who hurt you the most need you the most. You are to bless those who curse you. In Exodus chapter 23, it, it speaks of your enemy's ox uh, that, or his donkey that wanders away. And you're not supposed to go, yeah, way to go, he's losing it. Uh, you're supposed to say, uh, let me help you catch that. You, you're to return it to him. Also in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 17, it says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. But see, when we're not forgiving, we are rooting for them to fall. We want them to stumble. So you'll know if you're forgiving if you help the one who has hurt you. You'll also know if you're forgiving if you pray for them. Because it says in Romans, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse uh, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who do wrong towards you. You pray for them. And then overall, you'll seek reconciliation. You will seek to be reconciled with them. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Be at peace. Those things show a forgiving heart. And as we know by what Jesus taught, the heart is all important. It says in Matthew 18, verse 35, Unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's a heart thing. And so the power of forgiveness is that it can both change and restore lives as you resist revenge, as you help those who've hurt you, as you pray for them, and as you seek reconciliation. What I want to do next is look here at the end of Philemon and find out what does forgiveness look like in action? Paul has asked for it. And he's coming to the conclusion of his letter And I want to see what forgiveness looks like in action. This is so relevant for Grace Church today. We all have people that we need to seek forgiveness from. We all have people that we need to forgive. We need to know what it means to be forgiven by God, our unrepayable debt, as we looked at last week. So that we can forgive others their very manageable debts to us. Paul speaks in verse 21 of his confidence in Philemon. He has confidence in Philemon's obedience. He's either referring to Philemon's obedience to God or his obedience to Paul's instructions. See, forgiveness fosters obedience. Because it's like this. When you forgive, you're obeying God. Which leads to more obedience. Doing the right thing leads to more of the same. If you're going in the right direction, it is easier to keep going in the right direction. If you're going in the wrong direction, it's easier to keep going in the wrong direction because of momentum. That's what repentance is all about. Stopping and turning around. Turning from your sin and moving towards God. Going in the right direction. As we saw in verses 4 through 7, Philemon had good relationships. Paul wrote of him, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And then he says in verse 7, For I have come to have much joy 
much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Interestingly, that Paul asks in verse 20, refresh my heart. Forgive Onesimus and refresh my heart. And that is what Philemon had a pattern of doing, refreshing the hearts of the saints, which would include forgiveness, good relationships that includes the fact that he was a forgiving man. So here's what Paul asked. Paul says in verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you because I know that you're going to do more than what I'm asking you to do. See, he knew his man. He knew who he was writing to. He knew the type of person he was. He knew his track record. And he says, I know that you are going to do above and beyond what I've asked you to do. You know when Paul says, uh, whatever he owes you, I put on my account? What I picture is that no money changed hands. We don't know that for sure. But I picture no money changing hands. That's beyond what Paul was asking him to do. He says, I know you're going to do this. He says, look, forgive the guy. God has forgiven him. God's dealt with his sin. Now you deal with it. You forgive him. You let him go. God let him go. You let him go. Now think about what's important to us. Think about our values. Think about our values even as a church. God's word. God's word teaches forgiveness. Prayer. Prayer is hindered if we don't forgive. Families. Every family needs forgiveness in a major way on a daily basis. Think about relationships in general. All relationships need forgiveness because we are constantly doing something to someone, sometimes real, sometimes imagined. That's the hardest one, isn't it? When you've imagined that someone has done something to you and you think you're supposed to be um, needing to forgive them and they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't sinned. You're the one that needs to repent. They didn't do anything. How about service? You can't serve if you don't forgive. Oh, you might be doing something on the outward, but it's not coming from pure heart. And how about outreach? You can't reach out if you're not forgiving. It's hindered. God can still use you, but you'll be much less effective. Matthew 6, verse 15 says, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. And some people say that God's forgiveness is conditional based upon this verse. Not so. Not so. Otherwise, salvation would be of works. That God's not going to forgive you. That you can't come to Christ if you don't forgive others. That would be a work. And we know that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. So what does it mean? You need to understand God's forgiveness of you in salvation, but also on an ongoing basis in sanctification, in Christian growth. So you've got in salvation the one-time forgiveness of all your debts before God, that God has forgiven you and freed you of all your sins. But then you've got to also understand in sanctification the daily, continuing, day-by-day need to be forgiven of the sins we commit. See, in salvation, we're forgiven of all of our sins. We are transformed by the grace of God. But in the process of Christian growth, in sanctification, we have that daily need to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored to a right relationship with God as we go off the path. Matthew 6.15 is in the context of growth in Christ. Think of it this way. The Lord's Prayer. uh, Our Father. Only a a Christian can pray our Father... uh, Only a child of God, a Christian can call God his father, and it's in regard to growth. If we don't forgive 
other people. We don't lose our salvation. We hinder our relationship with God. We hinder our relationship with other people. And see, if you can't forgive other people, if you're sitting there and you say, I just can't do it. Well, you gotta, there's one of two things happening. You are either not a Christian or you're in gross rebellion against God. It's not the person that you're angry at that is causing the problem. The problem's in your heart. So you've got to test yourself and see, as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you convicted of your sin? Do you, do you sense any remorse over your sin? Is there a pulse? Uh, can you forgive other people their offenses? If not, you need to come to Jesus. If so, you need to get outside of the rebellion and allow God to pierce your own heart. Allow God to give you a fresh look at your own heart and the unrepayable debt that he has paid for you. I was thinking this week, what's the most common prayer that I pray? And it is, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I've, I've caught myself in the last month praying and realizing that's what I pray the most often. God, forgive me. Because I sin all the time. Now, forgiveness necessitates something else. It necessitates accountability with other people. To forgive people, it's helpful to have other people around you who know what's going on. Verse 22, Paul says, and it, it sounds so so simple and so mundane, but he says this, at the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. He's saying, get a room ready for me because I'm going to see you soon. I'm going to be with you. Well, that's an interesting thing because he's asking him to to forgive Onesimus. See, what's going to happen, the accountability for Philemon came in because he's soon going to see Paul. Who's asking him to do this? Paul's not going to forget about this. But see, sometimes we like to drag our feet in doing something we know God wants us to do. But with with Philemon, there would be none of that because he had built-in accountability knowing that he's going to see Paul face-to-face very soon. He needed to do it. We all need accountability. We need to hold one another lovingly and humbly and gently accountable. Uh, when we see there are broken relationships in our families, when we see there are broken relationships in our marriages, in fellowship, in the body of Christ. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you have people like that that you're close enough that they can hold you accountable? And are you that kind of person for someone else? If not, you need to get close to somebody. You need to get associated with people in the body of Christ so that those kind of things can happen. That is what the body of Christ is supposed to do. And the forgiveness strengthens fellowship. Forgiveness builds fellowship. In verse 23, Paul now lists five people. In this, in this short letter, this, this microscopic letter in the New Testament, there's 12 people listed. 12 people. And in this one verse, you've got, in the next two verses, you've got five people listed. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he says, sends you greetings. Uh, he, he, we know from Colossians chapter 4 that he prayed, Epaphras prayed for uh, the church in Colossae, that he cared for them. He was known as the evangelizer of Colossae, most likely the one who founded the churches there, most likely their recent pastor. 
of the church that met in Philemon's home. And he says, and, and Mark greets you. Mark. You know, Paul is, is encouraging restoration here. He's encouraging forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, so much restoration had already taken place in Mark's life. See, Mark is the one who had defected during Paul's first missionary journey. You see it in Acts chapter 15. It led to a a dispute between Barnabas and Paul that was such a sharp disagreement, they parted ways. And Paul took Silas and went one way. Barnabas took Mark, his cousin, and went elsewhere. See, it doesn't... You can have disagreements with brothers and sisters in Christ. But what did it lead to? What happened as a result? Well, you've, got, you've got the idea here that Mark became a changed man due to several things. Paul's discipline. Paul's refusal to take him. That's one of the things that God used in his life to change him. What else did God use in his life to change him? Barnabas' interaction. Also Peter's interaction with him. And what, what does Paul do shortly before his death? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. You've got to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. The beloved physician, Luke, he's the only one with me. And then he says this. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. See, a restoration had taken place. He formerly was useless. Interesting that Onesimus means useful. <laughs> and he was useless, and now he's useful. And Paul had someone in his own life that was, was an Onesimus. Who else is there? Aristarchus is there. He was from Thessalonica. He was with Paul at the riot in Ephesus. You see it in Acts chapter 19. He was with Paul in his imprisonment. He was with Paul while he was in chains. And then there was Demas. You know, so much restoration had taken place already in Mark's life, but so much restoration was yet to come. Hopefully, we don't know. The dirt on Demas hadn't yet been uncovered, but he's the guy that, said that, that, that uh, 2 Timothy 4.10 says, he uh, loved this present world. He has deserted us because he has loved this present world. He left. Then there was Luke, the beloved physician, his fellow workers, See, these men were Philemon's friends. Philemon had this great opportunity to be a good example to his friends. If he didn't forgive, he would hinder fellowship. Which, it, it, it hurts fellowship when you hold someone, something against someone else. See, if your relationships aren't healthy, you can't have true fellowship with the body of Christ. Something is sick. If your relationships aren't healthy in your family or in the body of Christ... Neither is your ministry. You serve in a ministry and you can't get along with people within that ministry. Your ministry is sick. And God can still use it, but it's hindered in a major way. And maybe some people don't even see it. But there's weeds growing all over the place. And they're choking out life. You've got to take care of it. See, when you obey what God wants you to do, when you uh, are accountable to others in the process and, and you listen to your, your trusted friends, The fellowship is strengthened. The body of Christ is strengthened. When you don't do it, it's cut down. It's weakened. But it's strengthened when sin is appropriately dealt with. You can't have restoration. You can't have reconciliation without dealing with sin. 
but not someone else's sin, yours. Not looking at someone else and chasing them down and saying, you've got to change, but you've got to deal with your own heart. Let God do surgery on your own heart. See, some say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. They give a smile to someone and they hate them within the body. But see, Onesimus, he returned. He, he repented, but he didn't leave well enough alone. He didn't just stay in Rome and say, well, I'm forgiven, and I just need now to forgive myself and all will be well. No, he realized that something was wrong between he and Philemon. And so he went back. He didn't just say, well, let bygones be bygones. He'll get over it. He went back. And every step of the way from Rome to Colossae, over hundreds of treacherous miles of of sea and land, he was repenting every step of the way. And what do you think was on his mind every step of the way? He had sinned against his master Philemon, but his, his primary sin was against God. He had sinned against God. When David sinned with Bathsheba, and then he consequently had a man killed, her, her husband killed, he prayed to God in, in, in Psalm 51, verse 4. He said this, he said, God, against you and you only I have sinned. Well, he had hurt people deeply. He had had a man killed even. And he says his greatest offense was against God. See, that, that points out the, 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 the um, uh, gravity, the weight of sin, the, 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 the full seriousness of sin and how, how bad it really is. It's first an offense to God. The word sin has fallen on hard times. Well, we don't want to use the word. We want to take it out of our vocabulary. We think if we take it out of our vocabulary, it's nothing we have to deal with and we don't owe anything to God or someone else. That's not true. See, if you can keep sin out of your vocabulary, you can live under the illusion that you don't owe anything to God or anybody else. But among those who do admit sin, uh, it's widely misunderstood. We, we think of sin only as missing the mark. Well, I, I, I blew it, you know. I had a relapse. The, the New Testament uses five main Greek words for sin. Hamartia, that's the, that's the missing the mark, uh, failing to reach a goal. Uh, there's adikia, which is unrighteousness, iniquity. Uh, there is poneria, which is evil of a vicious and degenerate kind. It, it points to inward corruption and perversion of character. Uh, there is a parabasis, which means a trespass or a, a transgression. It literally means to step over a known boundary. You know that's the boundary and you, you go bold face over it. And then there's anomia, which means lawlessness, and it's disregarding or violating a known law. You know there's the law, but you talk on your cell phone, in the car, and it's in your hand. Uh, In each case, there is a standard that we fail to keep, or there is a line we deliberately cross. Okay? Scripture focuses on the the, the self-centeredness, the godless self-centeredness of sin. Uh, Sin is not giving God what is due to Him. It's not submitting our entire will to Him. It is is literally outright hostility towards God. It's active rebellion against Him. It's not a relapse or a weakness. That soft pedals it. It is is what one person says, getting rid of the Lord God. That's what sin is. And God knew all about that. God knew all about that, which makes what He did through Jesus on the cross so amazing. 
God dealt with sin fully on the cross. John Stott said the only thing God couldn't do in the face of human rebellion was nothing. (laughs) He must either inflict punishment or assume it. He chose the latter, honoring the law while saving the guilty. He took his own judgment. God dealt fully with sin on the cross, and the gospel message is that Jesus frees us from the power and the penalty of sin. That's the gospel. Jeremiah 31, God says, Their sins I will remember no more. And remember means to act on the basis of. And God no longer relates to us on the basis of our sin when we are in Christ. That's why we can freely walk around and say, By grace I'm saved. And not feel the weight and the burden, the crushing burden of our sin that we once felt. Interestingly, though, once you come into Christ, you feel worse about the sins you commit after coming to Christ than you did before. And they're smaller things, but they seem so bad because you now know. Your eyes have been opened. See, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's all of grace that we might recognize our need and be restored to God. See, we were so bad, Christ had to die. We were so valuable to him, he wanted to. He wanted to. But Christianity is never about our righteousness. It's never about our godliness. It's always about Jesus. It's always. If you want to know the right answer, it is always Jesus. It's always about him, never about what we do. Mark Dever put it this way, we don't become Christians to wrap a veil of virtue around our hearts and pretend we're righteous. We pray that God will strip away the veneer, the pretense that we're right and others are wrong, and leave us to rely on Christ's righteousness alone. You see, that is the heart of Christianity that we see in Philemon. Without ever seeing the word forgiveness in in the letter, without ever seeing the word repentance in the letter, without ever seeing the word reconciliation in the letter. That's the heart of forgiveness that we see in Philemon. Paul, encouraging forgiveness, a a peacemaker. Philemon, needing to forgive someone. Onesimus, needing to be forgiven. See, forgiveness truly has the power to change and to transform lives. Many of you have experienced this. But when was the last time you went out of your way to see to it that two Christians who were at odds were reconciled? Peacemaking. Have you uh, done double duty and worked very hard to forgive someone and then found that after a time you were still angry and bitter and resentful towards them, and you start to call into question, did I really forgive them in the first place? Was my forgiveness really valid? Yeah, it was valid in the first place, but forgiveness is a process. And so your next act of forgiveness needs to be real too. When you remember that sin, when it gets dredged up, and you start being angry once again, and bitter and resentful, give it up to God once again. When was the last time you sought someone's forgiveness for something you did wrong? See, forgiveness is, is saturated with something. It's soaked in it. 
bleeds it. You cut forgiveness and grace comes out. (laughs) Forgiveness is saturated with grace. Grace. Look at verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's not not just a a cool sounding ending line. (laughs) What should I say? Well, how about grace? That covers the entire letter. The whole letter is saturated in it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. P.T. Forsyth said this, it was God's holy love in action which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. It's like the loving parent of a prodigal son or daughter. They grieve over their waywardness, but at the same time you know that simply condoning their sin will not bring them back. They have got to come to their senses before they'll turn around. You see a beautiful picture of grace in the parable of the prodigal son. The wayward son, the loving father. I'm going to put a picture up here of Rembrandt's return of the prodigal. But it's an awesome example of repentance and forgiveness joining to foster reconciliation. At least between the father and the son. The two brothers, that's another story. The father waited. The father waited to show grace and and shower love upon his son. And when he returned, he ran. The other son, he withheld forgiveness. Now you may have been waiting four weeks. Four weeks for something to change. Holding on to something for four weeks now. I've been the, it's been my privilege to be your pastor for, for two years now. Maybe you've been waiting for two years. Maybe you've been waiting for 10 years or 20 years. And you're waiting. But you're waiting for someone else to take the first step. You want them to initiate and then maybe you will grant what you know you need to give. But God is calling you to move. God is calling you to make movement and I challenge you to do the thing you know God wants you to do. Do that thing that God, that you know God wants you to do because it comes up in your heart every day and you think about it and you push it aside. You need to initiate. Don't wait. Don't wait for someone else to humble themselves. You humble yourself. You go. Even if you're not the perpetrator. Go. Take a step of faith toward forgiveness. It is powerful good. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you that we can both laugh and cry. And we sometimes just cry over our own condition. And sometimes you fill us with such joy because of, because of the weight that you have lifted off our shoulders. But I pray, Lord, now for my brothers, my sisters, for us as a fellowship, for the families represented here, that you help us not wait for someone else, but that we'll move at your command. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.